Welcome to tape number seven of Truth's Victory Over Error or the True Principles of the Christian Religion by David Dixon. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts it's on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading from Truth, Victory Over Air by David Dixon, Chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day, Question Number 3. Is religious worship to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone? Yes. Is religious worship to be given to angels, saints, or any other creature? No. Matthew 4, verse 10. Matthew 8, verse 49. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, John 5:23, Colossians 2:18, Revelation 19 verse 10, and Romans 1:25. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that not only God but good angels and saints departed, being canonized by the Pope, ought to be worshipped and called upon even after religious manner, but chiefly the Virgin Mary, and that there is a divine power in the relics of saints? which therefore ought to be worshipped? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Lord our God and He alone is to be worshipped. Matthew 4, verse 10 and Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Second, because the object of invocation and religious adoration is He only who is omnipotent, omniscient, and searcher of the heart. For there is none that knows our necessities and wants but he that is omniscient, and none can succor and help us, but he that is omnipotent. But angels are not omniscient, Ephesians 3, verse 10, and 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Neither are the saints departed omniscient, as is clear from Isaiah 63, verse 16. Abraham is ignorant of us. Third, because they that are dead know nothing of our condition, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. Fourth, because no man ought to know, call upon him in whom he doth not believe. Romans 10, verse 14. But no man ought to believe in saints or angels, but in God alone. Isaiah 26, verse 4. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Fifth, because neither saints alive nor angels would su- suffer or allow adoration and worship to be given to themselves. Acts 10, verse 25. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. Ninth, because the worshiping of angels doth derogate from the honor of Christ, in whom we have boldness and access 
with confidence by the faith of him. Ephesians 3, verse 12. Seventh, because the worshiping of saints and angels is like a polytheism, the having of many gods. For the papists attribute to each of the saints and angels a proper power as the heathens did of old and to their idols and false gods. Question 4. Is any religious worship given to God since the fall without a mediator? No. Nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone? No. John 14 verse 6, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, Ephesians 2 verse 18, Colossians 3 verse 17. Well then, doth not the Popish Church err who maintain that saints departed, but chiefly the Virgin Mary, are mediators and intercessors between God and man? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Scripture affirms expressly that there is but one mediator between God and man, namely, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Second, because no man cometh to the Father but by Christ, John 14, verse 6. And by him we have access to the Father, Ephesians 2, verse 18. Third, because the Scripture promiseth that they shall be heard that in the name of Christ seek such things as are according to the will of God. But there is no promise in all the world that they shall be heard that prayer to saints or angels, that pray to saints or angels. John 14, verse 13 and 14. 1 John 5, verse 14. Fourth, because the Apostle says, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, not in the name of saints. Colossians 3, verse 17. Fifth, because Christ, who is called a propitiation for our sins, is also called our advocate with the Father. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Six, because mediation is a part of the priestly office of Christ, which is only proper to himself and which cannot be divided between him and the saints. Seventh, because the saints are not to be called upon as was proved in the foregoing question. Question five, is prayer with thanksgiving one special part of God's worship required by God of all men? Yes, Philippians 4, verse 6, Psalm 65 verse 2 well then do not the Adamites that's A-D-A-M-I-T-E-S and others long in the grave who deny that God was to be called upon for say they God is omniscient and bestows all things upon us freely without our prayer yes do not likewise some late heretics err who maintain that unregenerate men ought not to call upon God? Yes. Do not also the Quakers err who will not move in the commanded duties of prayer and thanksgiving unless there be some inward call and motion on their spirit? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because there are extent many universal precepts in the word by which the duty of prayer is commanded. Philippians 4, verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, John 16, 24, Matthew 7, 7. Second, because God is the hearer of prayer, and to him shall all flesh come. Psalm 65, verse 2. Third, we have the example of David, Psalm 55, verse 17, of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 10, 
the examples of those many who were gathered together praying in behalf of the Apostle Peter, Acts 12, verse 12, the example of Christ himself, John 17. Fourth, because the Apostle Peter bid Simon Magus, who was then in the gall of bitterness and bonds of iniquity, to repent and call upon God, Acts 8, verse 22. As to the Quakers, what assurance can they have the next hour or the next day more than now of the spirits moving on their souls? And are we not commanded to pray without ceasing? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. That is, upon all opportunities and in all our necessities. Question 6. If prayer be vocal, ought it to be in a known tongue? Yes. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that it is not needful that public prayers be in a known tongue, but that it is oftentimes expedient that prayers be performed in a tongue unknown to the common people? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the apostle teaches expressly the contrary. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 9 and 12. Second, because prayers celebrated in an unknown tongue are not for edification. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. Third, because he that occupieth the room of the unlearned, that is, who understands not strange tongues, cannot say, Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16. Fourth, because the Lord's Prayer, which is the special rule of all our prayers, was prescribed in a tongue at that time best known. Question 7. May we pray for the dead or those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death? No. Second Samuel 12, 21, 22, and 23, Luke 16, 25, and 26, Revelation 14, verse 13, and John 5, verse 16. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain that prayers, alms, and masses ought to be appointed and made for souls departed, as these which will really profit them? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the dead are either happy, and so they need not our prayers, Revelation 14, verse 13, or they are damned, and so our prayers cannot profit them. For out of hell there is no redemption, Luke 16, verse 12. Second, because we read that David mourned and fasted for the child so long as it was alive, but when once the child was removed by death, Wherefore he says, Should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Second Samuel 12, verse 22 and 23. Third, because all our requests and prayers are either founded upon a precept or promise of God to hear our prayers. But there is neither a promise that God will hear us in order to the dead, nor a command to pray for them. Fourth, because we are altogether ignorant of the state and condition of the dead, and therefore we cannot pray for them in faith. Romans 14, verse 23. Question 8. Is the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching, and comfortable hearing of the word in obedience to God with understanding, faith, and reverence, are they, I say, part of the ordinary religious worship? Yes. Are these with the due administration of the sacraments vis-a-vis baptism and the Lord's Supper, to continue in the church till the end of the world and the day of Christ? Yes. Acts 15.21, Revelation 1, verse 3, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Matthew 13, verse 19, James 1, verse 22, Hebrews 
4, verse 2 and 3, Isaiah 66, verse 2, and Acts 10, verse 33. Well then, do not the enthusiasts, libertines, Anabaptists, and other sectaries err, who, under pretext of being inspired by the Holy Ghost that teaches them all things, despise and contemn all reading of the scripture and public hearing of the word preached? Yes. Do not likewise the Quakers err, who are downright enemies to all the public ordinances, which Christ hath appointed to continue in his church to the end of the world? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because Christ commanded his apostles and in them all the ministers of the gospel to whom he hath promised his presence to the end of the world to teach all nations and to preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28, verse 19. Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. Second, because the public preaching of the word by a minister sent and called and the hearing of it is a mean ordained and appointed by God and according to the ordinary manner necessary for begetting faith and therefore needful to, to salvation. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Third, because God hath promised to his covenanted ones to bring them to his holy mountain and make them joyful in his house of prayer, that is, in the public meeting of the saints and people. Isaiah 60, excuse me, 55, verse 7. Fourth, from the example of those believers, Acts 2, verse 42, who continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Fifth, because the word of God is the perfect rule of life and manners, and all spirits are to be tried by it. 1 Timothy 3, 15, 1 John 4, 1, Isaiah 8, verse 20. Neither ought we to follow or hear any man, no, not an angel, if he teach anything contrary to the word or heterodox from it. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 2, Galatians 1, verse 8. 6. Because the word of God is that incorruptible seed by which we are born again. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. 7. Because God forbids expressly separations from public assemblies, I mean so long as the word is truly and purely taught by those who enter in by the right door, that is, Christ, and the way appointed by him in his word. John 10, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 10, verse 25. Because, excuse me, 8. Because the Lord hath joined together these two, his faithful servants, for teaching his people publicly and the promise of the Spirit to guide them and assist them in their work. Matthew 28, verse 20, John 16, verses 17, 16, 17, and 26. For confutation of the Quakers, two things must be made out. The one, that the office of the ministry is of divine institution. First, because God hath particularly designed some persons to, for the work of the ministry. For if God appointed some persons to be judges over Israel, then must the office of judging Israel be of divine institution? Christ appointed not only apostles, the seventy disciples, evangelists, prophets, whose call and gifts were extraordinary, but other ordinary pastors and teachers, whose spirits were not infallible, whom the scriptures affirmed to be as truly by divine institution as the former, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, 
Ephesians 4, verse 11. Second, because God hath given peculiar names and titles to the persons designed for this office, which he hath not given to other saints, the only wise God will not distinguish where he himself hath made no distinction or difference. These are called pastors, teachers, such as rule well, stewards of the mysteries of God, preachers, bishops or overseers of the flock, stars in Christ's right hand, angels of the church. Christ evidently puts a difference between the churches and the angels set over them. Revelation 2, verses 1, 8, 12, and 17. Revelation 3, verses 7 and 14. Third, because the Lord hath taken a special care to bestow peculiar gifts and qualifications upon these persons so designed for the ministry and that for the good of the souls of his people above what is required in other saints. Whatever the Lord hath bestowed such qualifications, if he had not appointed some for such an office, though gifts as gifts do not alone invest into such an office, yet when they are strictly required, they argue that there is an office. They must be apt to teach others, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, and not only so, but able to teach others, able to convince them that oppose themselves, Titus 1, verse 9. They must be such as study to show themselves approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. And the apostle, in admiration of the difficulty of this employment, crieth out, Who is sufficient for these things? 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16. Fourth, because the Lord requires peculiar duties of his ministers, which he doth not require of believers. Therefore, there must be such a distinct office by divine institution. They must take special care of the church of God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. 1 Timothy 5, verses 2 and 3. They are not to neglect the gift which is in them. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. They are to meditate on these things and to give themselves wholly to them. 1 Timothy 4, verse 15. Acts 6, verses 2 and 4. They are to preach the word, to rebuke, to instruct gainsayers. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. To administer the sacraments. Matthew 28, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13. To ordain others for the ministry by imposition of hands. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. To watch over the flock as those that must give an account. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Fifth, because Christ requires peculiar, distinct duties in the people in reference to their ministers, therefore the office of the ministry must be of divine institution. They must know and acknowledge those that are over them in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. Highly to esteem them in love for their work's sake. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. To obey them, to encourage them. Hebrews 13, verse 7 to maintain them, Galatians 6, verse 6, to pray for them, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. 6. Because God hath made peculiar promises to his ministers, as lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, Matthew 28, verse 20. The promise of special assistance, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. Of protection and defense in all assaults, Revelation 1, verse 20. 
The promise of the power of the keys, which promise was not limited to the apostles as apostles, but was given to the apostles as ministers of the gospel, as is evident from Matthew 18, verses 17 and 18. The promise of special sympathy with them, Mark 10, verse 40, Luke 10, verse 16, John 13, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. Now, would ever the Lord have promised to keep up and maintain that office in his church which he hath not set up and instituted? The other thing to be made out is that the office of the ministry is perpetually necessary. First, because the ordinances are perpetually necessary by divine institution. Therefore, the office of the ministry to dispense these ordinances is perpetually necessary by divine institution. For if God hath only appointed the ordinances to continue in his church, then would preaching and administration of the sacraments fail, because that which is every man's work is usually and effectually no man's work. The Lord doth not immediately administer them himself, neither are angels employed for this work. But he hath committed this service to men who are stewards and dispensers of the mysteries of God. It is evident that the preaching of the word shall continue to the end of the world, from Matthew 28, verse 20, Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13. It is evident of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are conjoined in the institution of Christ with the ministry of the word. For to whom he gave commission to preach, to them also he gave commission to administer the sacraments. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament appointed by God himself, for John was sent to baptize. God was the author. John was only the minister. This was to continue perpetually, as is evident from Christ's promise and his precept. Matthew 28, verse 28. The ends for which baptism was ordained were not temporary, but moral, and so perpetual. Do not all Christians now need these means as the Christians during the time of the apostles? Are not Christians now baptized into his death, buried with them in baptism, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life? It is called by the Holy Ghost a saving ordinance, and is unto believers and their feed, excuse me, seed in the New Testament, as the ark was to Noah and his family in the old world, who being in the ark, was saved from perishing in the waters when the rest were drowned. So baptism does now save us, not only or mainly the outward part of it, the putting away of the filth of the flesh, which is yet an ordinance to further our salvation, but when the spirit of regeneration effectually concurs, so that we find there is a renewing of the Holy Ghost, and thereby the answer of a good conscience towards God. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. It is evident that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to continue to the end of the world. It was not only appointed for apostles to whom it was first administered, but unto all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, and not only for that age, but for all generations succeeding. So, for believers are commanded to show forth the Lord's death till he come by eating this bread and drinking this cup. Therefore, if these ordinances by be appointed by God to continue to the end, it follows evidently that he hath designed the office of the ministry to hold up and hold forth his ordinances to the end of the world. Second, 
because the promises which Christ hath made to uphold the ministry are perpetual, therefore the office must be perpetual. Matthew 28, verse 20. Go teach and baptize all nations, and lo, I am with you to the end of the world. This promise cannot be limited to the particular age during the lives of the apostles because the Holy Ghost uses three expressions to declare the perpetuity of this promise. Aeon, that this promise should continue so long as the world continues. Secondly, that the promise shall have no end till the world be consummated or brought to a period. Thirdly, all days and successions of times, not only with you during your own days, but all the days of the gospel till time shall be no more. And this promise was not made to the apostles as apostles, not to the apostles as believers, but to the apostles as ministers and stewards of the mysteries of God. Third, because the elect require the office of the ministry perpetually. Our nature is as bad as Jews and pagans, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Our judgment full of darkness and ignorance, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Our will stubborn and rebellious and so alienated that we rebel against the light. The delusions of Satan are strong. The multitude of false teachers are very numerous so that they are ready to seduce the elect themselves if it were possible. Fourth, because the ends for which Christ hath appointed a ministry are perpetually necessary. The elect must be called and gathered, for there will be some still in every age to be added to the church of them that shall be saved. There are many sheep which are not yet brought in to his fold, many who belong to the election, who are not yet effectually called. Them also will Christ bring in, both Jews and Gentiles, that there may be one fold, as there is but one shepherd. Now, God hath revealed no other ordinary way to convert and bring those into his fold, but the ministry of his word. For how shall they believe without a preacher? Therefore, if there be some elect continually to be brought into fellowship with Christ, and this end not fully attained till the end of the world, then the ministry assigned to this end must be perpetually necessary. Question 9. Is singing of psalms with grace in the heart a part of the ordinary worship of God? Yes. Colossians 3, verse 16, Ephesians 5, 16, James 5, 13. Well then, do not the Quakers and other sectaries err who are against the singing of psalms, or at least tie it only to some certain persons, others being excluded? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, from the practice of Christ and his apostles, Matthew 26, verse 30. From the example of Paul and Silas, Acts 16, verse 25. From Moses and the Israelites, Exodus 15. Second, because the singing of Psalms was commanded under the Old Testament, and that not as a type of any substance to come, not for any ceremonial cause. Neither is it abrogated under the New Testament, but confirmed. Psalm 30, verse 4. Psalm 139, verse 1. Third, from the general and universal commands in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, verse 19, Colossians 3, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Fourth, because the Apostle James says, Is any man afflicted? Let him pray. 
Is any man merry? Let him sing psalms. James 5, verse 13. The meaning is not that none should sing but such as are merry, for then none should pray but such as are afflicted. Fifth, because by singing of psalms we glorify God, we make him his praise glorious, we edify others with whom we sing as well as we edify ourselves. So the end to be proposed in singing is teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, verse 16. Lastly, we cheer and refresh ourselves by making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 19. Which ariseth first from our conscious, conscientious going about it as a piece of the worship to God, and in so doing we are accepted in that. Secondly, from its being a part of Scripture appointed for His praise, whether it agree with our case or not. That being the end, wherefore it was designed to be sung, is a sufficient warrant for our joining in the singing thereof. Question 10. Is prayer or any other part of religious worship now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed? No. John 4.21 Malachi 1 verse 11, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Well then, do not the papists err who consecrate churches and ascribe holiness to them and to other places far off where they mumble their preachings and mutter their prayers? Yes. Do not likewise many ignorant persons err who think their private prayers will be more acceptable to God being said in the kirk or church than in their own private closets? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Lord says by the mouth of his prophet that prayer shall be offered up to him in all places under the time of the gospel, Malachi 1, verse 11. Second, because Christ commands us when we pray to enter into our closet and the door being shut to pray to our Father which is in secret, lest we should seem to desire praise and approbation from men, which rite and ceremony of praying publicly when we should pray privately. Christ clearly condemns Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6. Third, because Paul wills that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Fourth, because Christ says, The hour cometh when we shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. John 4, verse 21. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Question 11. Hath God in his word by a positive moral and perpetual commanded, binding all men in all ages, particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto himself? Yes. Exodus 20, verses 8, 10, and 11. Isaiah 56, 2, 4, 6, and 7. Well then, do not some men err who maintain that God hath not under the gospel determined any certain day for his own worship, but only hath commanded that some indefinite time be defined or destined for public worship? Which time, say they, is left to be determined by the church? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, the determining of an ordinary and sufficient time for divine worship and as a Sabbath belongs to God only and not to man. For we do not read that any such power or authority is granted to man 
either by the law of nature or scripture. Is it not a thing of very great moment? Is it likely that the wisdom of God should leave it uncertain? This might accuse the scripture of imperfection. It is not suitable to the love of God and his care towards his church. If such men's doctrines and the church universal and all ecumenical councils should be guilty of a dreadful sin, which for so many ages have been deficient in their duty, therefore it behooves that there be one day in seven by virtue of the fourth command, seeing nowhere else another necessary day is appointed or prescribed in the word. Second, because it is just and equitable as the adversaries grant that one day should be set apart for God who hath freely given us six. Third, because in six days God made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh, not out of necessity, but to give us an example to do the like. Fourth, because one day of ten, twenty, or thirty cannot be thought convenient, neither is such a thing commanded in any place of scripture. And would it not argue a neglect of divine worship and the care of souls if one day of ten, thirty, or forty were appointed? Neither can the fourth, fifth, or sixth day be appointed, seeing God have commanded us to work six days. This would make our yoke more heavy than the Jewish yoke, which adversaries will not grant. Fifth, because it is the principal and chief scope of the fourth command that one day in seven, in respect of us, be set apart and consecrated to divine worship, not truly that some indefinite time be set apart. If this were true, the fourth command should differ substantially from the other precepts of the Decalogue, and so there behooved to be a useless precept, or at least a tautology ought to be committed. Do not likewise the Anabaptists, Socinians, and Libertines err, with whom we may take in the Quakers and other anti-Sabbatarians that disown the Sabbath as being carnal and a command of the letter who teach that whatever is contained in the fourth command is ceremonial and so properly as to the matter and substance which it holds out abrogated wholly and therefore say they by virtue of this fourth command there is no day to be set apart for public divine worship yes by what reasons are they confuted First, because the fourth command, which appoints one day of seven to be set apart for God, is a positive and moral command as to substance, seeing it was given to Adam in his integrity. Before ever there was a need of any types and ceremonies shadowing forth Christ. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. Second, because it was repeated before the promulgation of the ceremonial law. Exodus 16, verse 23. Third, because it was written with God's own hand and inserted into the midst of the rest of the moral precepts and was put into the ark of the testimony with the other nine, which honor was never conferred upon any precepts merely ceremonial. Fourth, because all the reasons of this command are entirely moral. He rested after six days and allowed us six days to work. Therefore, in all equity we ought to rest after so many days work and give God a seventh. Fifth, because Christ confirms this command in saying, Pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, where the Lord insinueth 
that as traveling is troublesome to the body in winter, so would it be to the minds of the godly to travel on that day, specially and solemnly set apart for God's worship. Now, if there be no Sabbath to continue after Christ's ascension, or if it were not to be sanctified, there would be no occasion of this grief and trouble that they behoove to travel on the Sabbath, and durst not tarry till that day were bypassed, and so no cause to be put up this prayer, which yet by our Lord's exhortation seemeth to infer that the Sabbath was to be as certain in its time as the winter, and doubtless this cannot be meaned of the Jewish Sabbath, for that was to be abolished shortly. Next, traveling on the Jewish Sabbath was to be no cause of grease unto them, if indeed all days were alike, neither would it be scrupled in such case as by the apostles to whom he is now speaking. Question 12. Was this one day in seven from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ the last day of the week? Yes. And was it from the resurrection of Christ changed into the first day of the week? Yes. And is it to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath? Yes. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Acts 20, verse 7. Revelation 1, verse 10. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Well then, do not the Sabbatarians err who maintain that the Jewish Sabbath or the seventh day from the creation is to be observed? Yes. Do not others likewise err who maintain that the observation of the Lord's day is only of ecclesiastic and apostolic institution? Yes. These authors, you see, do confound and make two things really distinct, to be but one, namely, ecclesiastical and apostolic institution. Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the fourth command standing, wherein one day of seven is appointed, the numbering is left free to God himself, that the right and power may be reserved to Christ the lawgiver and to his spirit for the change of the day, and to continue the worship prescribed in the fourth command. Second, from the name itself, for our Sabbath is called the Lord's Day, Revelation 1, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day, or on that Lord's Day, or Dominic day, or day which is the Lord's, pointing out a day singularly and a day which in peculiar and special manner is called his day. Even as the Lord's prayer and the Lord's supper are so called because appointed by Christ the Lord. Third, because God only can abrogate the Lord's day and the adversaries granting so much, therefore he that hath power to rescind hath power likewise to establish. Fourth, because there is an implicit command concerning the observation of the Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. As I have, saith Paul, given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. The first day of the week let every one of you lay by him, from which place we may reason thus, that not the seventh but the first day is the chief solemn day for worship after Christ's resurrection, because the apostles did pitch particularly and eminently upon that day, and that in diverse churches, as the fittest time for expressing their charity, he doth not think it indifferent what day it be done on, nor that all days are alike, but pitched on the first day, not in one church, but only, but in many. 
Next, this command supposeth them to be already acquainted with some special privileges of the first day beyond others, and there must be some peculiar thing in this day making it fit, yea, more fit for such a purpose rather than any other day. Fifth, because as the seventh day was instituted in remembrance of the works of creation, so the first day, after the work of redemption was finished, succeeded as most convenient for collating and comparing both mercies together. Sixth, because Christ on the first day of the week appeared most frequently to his disciples and blessed it with his presence. Matthew 28, verse 9, Acts 1, verse 3, John 20, verses 19 and 26. Seventh, because on that day the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles, and on the same day Peter baptized 3,000. Acts 2, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 41. Eight, because the church in the time of the apostles did observe this first day of the week as holy. Acts 20, verse 7. But the practice of the apostles, a proven in scripture, is equivalent to a divine institution. Nine, of his apostles, forty days after his resurrection, and spoke to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, during which time he had taught them all things needful to be known, and among the rest, it is probable, the change of the Sabbath and the institution of the first day of the week, and that immediately after his resurrection, he hath either immediately by himself instituted that day, or hath inspired his apostles to observe it from the very same time. Tenth, because the Lord hath remarkably owned this Christian Sabbath in being remar remarkably avenged upon the breakers and profaners thereof, as it is clear from several histories. Question 13. Is the Sabbath then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparation of their hearts, and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also taking up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his own worship, except what is spent in the duties of necessity and mercy? Yes. Exodus 15, verses 23, 25, 26, 29, and 30. Exodus 31, verse 15, 16, and 17. Isaiah 58, verse 13. Nehemiah 13, verses 15, 16, 18, 19, 21, and 22. Well then, do not some err who think, after public worship is ended, the rest of the Lord's Day may be spent in ordinary exercises, recreations, and such like other sports as are not unlawful on other days, unless they be forbidden by the church or commonwealth wherein men live? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the Lord says in the fourth command, it, In it thou shalt not do any work. But ordinary recreations, games, and sports are our own works. Second, because nature itself requires that we bestow as much of the Sabbath day upon God, who is the Lord of time and of all things which we have, as we can and use to bestow upon our own affairs on other days. Third, because the Lord says, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy of the Lord honorable, and 
shall honor him not doing thine own ways nor finding thine own pleasures nor speaking thy own words then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord and I will cause thee to ride on the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken Isaiah 58 verse 13 and 14 see also Jeremiah 17:22, Deuteronomy 5:12. 13 and 15 Numbers 15 verses 32 33 and 36 and Nehemiah 15 to verse 23 in those days saw I in Judah some treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine grapes and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and I testified against them in the day where I sexuals Chapter 22 Of Lawful Oaths and Vows Question 1 Is the name of God that only by which men ought to swear? Yes. Deuteronomy 6.13 Well then, do not the papists err who in their swearing join with the calling upon the name of God, the calling upon saints departed, and their relics? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because swearing is a part of divine worship which is only due to God Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 Isaiah 65 verse 16 second because God only is the judge of hidden and secret truth and the avenger to take vengeance on them that do not swear in truth therefore he only is to be called on as witness of these things which are affected and asserted and promised which was the practice of the Apostle Paul, Romans 9, verse 1, Philippians 1, verse 8. Third, because God condemns swearing by them that are no gods, Jeremiah 5, verse 7. Question 2. Is an oath warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old in matters of weight and moment? Yes. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Isaiah 65, verse 16, Galatians 1, 20, Romans 1, verse 9, and Romans 9, verses 1, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and 23, and 2 Corinthians 10, excuse me, 11, verse 13, and 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27, and Revelation 6, excuse me, 10, verse 6. Well then, do not the Quakers and Anabaptists err who maintain that there is no lawful use of an oath under the New Testament? Yes. Do not likewise the Papists err who make it a degree of perfection to abstain from all oaths? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, from Isaiah 61, verse 16, where it is promised under the time of the gospel that the nations to be converted to Christ shall swear by the name of God as is clear also from Jeremiah 4 verse 2 second because the calling upon the name of God with due fear and reverence in swearing is commanded in the third command as the profanation of his name is forbidden but Christ came not to abolish the moral law third from the approven examples of the saints which occur in the New Testament Galatians 1 verse 20 Romans 1, verse 9, and 2 Corinthians 1, verses 13 and 18, Revelation 10, verse 6. Fourth, 
because the end of an oath is approved by God and is in all ages necessary to all men, being the end of all controversy. Hebrews 11, verse 16. Fifth, because an oath rightly taken is an act of religion, whereby we glorify God and adore his attributes. We thereby first solemnly acknowledge his being and existence. Secondly, his ubiquity that he is present in all places and in all times and within our hearing. Psalm 139, verse 7. His omniscience that he is the searcher of the heart. The apostle calls him the searcher of the heart in Acts 15, verse 8. We acknowledge, fourthly, his truth and veracity. He is a witness brought into the court that cannot lie, nor be imposed upon, as, faith, as saith the apostle. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Galatians 6, verse 6. Fifthly, his supremacy over all creatures, for verily men swear by the greater. Hebrews 11, verse 16. We acknowledge, sixthly, his vindicative justice, as he is a revenger of perjury. Seventhly, we acknowledge his providence and fatherly care of the concerns of mankind, owning the cause of the righteous. Sixth, because there being an express law for swearing, visa fee rightly, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, it must either belong to the moral law, to the judicial law, or the ceremonial law. The adversaries will not call it a part of the judicial law, which was given to the Jews as a body politic, which expired together with the state of that people. It is no part of the ceremonial law, for what was purely ceremonial was purely typical. But the law concerning an oath was not a type of anything to come. And if it was a type, where will you find its antitype in the gospel, or the thing represented by it? Therefore, it must be a part of the moral law. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, Jeremiah 4, verse 2. And consequently, perpetual, which Christ came not to destroy. It is confirmed hence that it was of authentic use and held sacred among the patriarchs before the delivery of the Levitical law, as is clear from Abraham, the father of the faithful, and Abimelech. Genesis 21, verses 23, 24, and 31. Consider also that other instance in Abraham, Genesis 24, verse 2, 3, and 9, who would not give his servant an oath rashly, nor exercise his authority to impose upon his conscience. It is evident also from the example of Isaac, who made a covenant and swore to Abimelech, Genesis 26, verses 28 and 31, and from the example of Jacob, who made a covenant with and swore to his uncle Laban by the fear of his father Isaac, Genesis 31, verse 53. That is, by God, who is called our fear, by reason of the filial awe and fear we ought to stand in before him. Isaiah 8, verse 13. Seventh, because the reasons and usefulnesses of oaths are to us under the gospel as they were to them under the law, there is as much need of oaths for ending of strife in this litigious age as there could be in former times. Eighth, because oaths were once lawful, therefore they are lawful still, unless the adversaries prove them repealed, which they must do, not by stealing out of the scripture single words by themselves, making one part contradict another. Ninth, because we need not fear to imitate anything which is done in heaven.
our Lord has taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the angel says, John, Revelation 10, verses 5 and 6, which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that liveth forever and ever. That angel calls himself our fellow servant, and of our brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, Revelation 22, verse 9. And therefore the angels being of the same fraternity with us, do not act under different dispensations from us. Question 3. Is an oath to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equity or mental reservation? Yes. Psalm 24, verse 4. Exodus 20, verse 7. Leviticus 16, verse 12. Jeremiah 4, verse 2. Well then, do not the Anabaptist err who maintain that it is lawful in swearing to use words of equivocation? Yes. Do not likewise the papist heir who maintain mental reservation to be lawful in swearing? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because the scripture requires from all men in their common, common dealing one with another in their discourse and conferences verity and simplicity. Ephesians 4 verse 25 much more are these things required in swearing, wherein God is called to be a witness of the truth of these things which are asserted. Second, because the Lord threateneth such as use guile and deceit in their words. Psalm 15, verse 4, and Psalm 24, verse 4. Galatians 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. Third, because the Lord requires in every oath truth, righteousness, and judgment. Jeremiah 4, verse 2. Fourth, because equivocations and mental reservations are against the very end of an approved oath, which is to put an end to all debate and controversy. Fifth, because if equivocations and mental reservations were lawful, have made laws against lying, for a lie may be excused by mental reservation. Sixth, if equivocation and mental, mental reservations they would take away all commerce among men, and would make bonds, contracts, and charter parties of none effect. Question 4. Is a religious vow to be made to God alone and not to any creature? Yes, to God alone. Jeremiah 44, verse 25 and 26, and Psalm 77, verse 11. Well then, do not the papist heir who maintain vows to be made to saints departed, that is, to priors of monasteries or abbeys? Yes. By what reason are they confuted? First, because vows are a part of our gratitude and thankfulness due to God only for his favors and mercies conferred upon us. Psalm 1, verse 14. Psalm 64, verses 13 and 14. Second, because we are commanded in the word to make our vows to God and perform them, but nowhere are we appointed to make our vows to saints departed. Psalm 70, 68 verses 14. Third, because God only is the trier and searcher of the heart, and it is he only that knoweth the sincerity of the man's mind that voweth and is able to punish such as violate and break their vows. Deuteronomy 23 verse 21. Fourth, because the Lord threateneth those severely that had vowed to any other gods but to himself alone, and accuseth them of a very great sin. Jeremiah 44, verse 25 and 26. Question 5. 
are popish, monastical vows of a perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience, so far from being degrees of higher perfection, that they are superstitious and single snares in which no Christian may entangle himself? Yes. Matthew 19, verse 11 and 12, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 and 9, Ephesians 4, verse 28, and 1 Peter 4, verse 2. Well then, do not the papists err who maintain monastical vows of a perpetual single life, professed poverty and regular obedience to be degrees of higher perfection? Yes. By what reasons are they confuted? First, because a vow of a perpetual single life is unlawful, for no man ought to vow the performance of that which he hath not a promise of strength to perform. But no man hath a promise of perpetual continency, which is necessarily required to a perpetual single life. Nay, Christ says expressly that the gift of continency is not given to all men. Matthew 19, verse 11. Second, because marriage is honorable among all men and the bed undefiled. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Third, because the apostle bids every man take his own wife for shunning of fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, 2, and 9. Fourth, because the forbidding of marriage is a doctrine of devils. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 3. This ends tape number 7 of Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, fax at 780-468-1096, mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Truth, Victory Over Error by David Dixon, is also available from Stillwater Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.